Hey, hey, hey. Good morning, everyone. Hi. Hey. We're <laughs> Let's just keep going. Uh, if you've got a Bible beside you, you can go to John 15. Let's go to John 15 together. We're going to be in a few places in the Scripture, but I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, God's Word this morning with you and seeing what surprises uh, may be in store for us as a community. But as you're going there, we've got a few less people around. We had our cohort retreat this weekend up in Pemberton, and this is the leadership community in our church. So all the people who are leading teams and groups uh, in our church, we gathered together and had just a really sweet time up in Pemberton. And um, so for those of you who are praying for us, thank you for praying. And uh, I think God really met us in special ways. I was thinking last night we had just some extended time of worship, praying for one another. Um, we are focusing on the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's always just good to be reminded that there's reality behind the words and there's a reality behind the songs. Um, and to, again, be kind of shocked that uh, in, in the midst of like quiet agnosticism, oh, this is real. And so that kind of happened last night. I was thinking about this. Uh, years ago, I was at Pacific Theater. I arrived early and I got the little pamphlet. Um, what's it called, Kate? Not... Program. Yeah, they got the program. And, uh, you know, you're, you're reading ahead of time about the show. And there's this one line in there that said, uh, I, th I think this is right, theater educates our emotions. Uh, that's really interesting, and, and it's talking about how theater, you, 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 you get immersed in this world, you follow these characters, you experience, you, you get attached to them, you experience their highs and lows, and you go on this journey, and what uh, this quote was saying was that educates your emotions, it, it educates how to feel rightly. So just A, I think that's great, and we should probably say it more often, a lot of you are in theater, so thank you for the important work you're doing in educating our emotions well. I'm thinking of you, Andrea, and uh, others, so thank you for, uh, and John Voth, but not really. Um, <laughs> so yeah, just grateful, thank you. Uh, and I was thinking about that phrase, educating our emotions, also in worship. That's a big part of what we're doing here. We want to think well about God, we want to have, obviously, good doctrine, we want to think well, but we also want to feel well. We want our, our emotions to be educated, and usually throughout the week, our emotions are being shaped and educated to, I think, be suspicious of the divine, to hold some grudges, perhaps, to think, you know what, base reality is there's no God. We're shaped in that all the time, and so when we gather together, part of what we're doing is educating our emotions about what's most real. God is present. God is good. God is available, and I can meet with God now. I was just thinking about that. and um, So, anyways, that, that's, none of that's in the notes. Oh, another thing that's not in the notes. I just got to give a little shout-out. It's good to publicly gossip sometimes. And uh, I'm going to do a little public gossip about Scotty McTaggart. Uh, this guy's put a lot of work to make the retreat happen. He got up at 5.30 this morning uh, to drive back from Pemberton to help get the gathering going. He drove so I could write a sermon on the way, and we both kind of got car sick, but it was very beautiful. See the sky while the sun is coming up? Oh, my word. Never seen it at that time. Uh, so just thankful for Scott. He pulls so much weight behind the scenes that nobody sees, plus he just loves people tenaciously. So just so grateful for you, pal. Um, was someone, oh yeah, Elijah, let's, let's clap, that's good. That's, yeah, that's the right call, buddy. Good job. So, John 15. This is, this is one of Jesus' greatest hits, I think, this teaching here. Really good stuff. So he starts, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener, you are the branches. These are the key relationships Jesus is trying to establish. I'm the vine, the source, the father is the gardener overseeing all of this, and you are the branches. And verse 4, remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. 
it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. So this is just, first of all, some interesting anthropology. This is a vision of what it means to be human. Jesus' vision of a human being is something that's dependent, that doesn't originate all the life that it needs. There's a vision of a human being that actually requires being a receiver and gets emptied out and has to draw life from somewhere and is designed to be fruitful, to, be, to bear much fruit. And he's insisting that he's the connection to that, all of that life that you need. He's insisting that the way you find yourself into real life is through him. So he's describing the nature of relationship, and he's using something that we know, organic relationships, even if you're not a farmer or... Um, what are you, if you tend vines? Viniculture? viniculture? Yeah, something like that. Um, even if you know nothing about that, you know the organic uh, sense of relationships, and he's saying uh, the, the relationship is, is intermingling. There's ongoing contact. Uh, And that's what's required for you to be fully alive. And then he drops this absolute stunner in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Stay in my love. Do not move. Do not get disattached from my love. It's interesting. Being alive means being in love. And so the question becomes... How then will I order my life, my days, to remain in the love of God, to stay, to make my home in God's love? I think that's a good question to hold this morning. Earlier this week, I was reading some Seth Godin. He always comes into my mailbox every morning. Don't always read it, but there's this interesting little bit on analog, the analog world versus the digital world. And he's noting how in the analog world, in the traditional world, most things are organized so that you can find them when you're looking for them. He says, this is why you keep your tools in the toolbox and the forks in the silverware drawer. And this is why your books are ordered in alphabetical order or, or however you order but we or by author or however. But he says, in the digital world, finding something's both easier and harder. It's easier in that you just type something into the search bar, and you'll likely find it. It's harder, though, in the digital world, he says, and we're still exploring this, is how to organize things for browsing. He asks this question, how do you bump into the thing you didn't know you were looking for? How do you find your next favorite album when you don't know it exists yet? Like that album that's going to be your guilty pleasure 20 years from now. And you're like, I don't care if anyone doesn't like this, I love this album, or, or that important book, or that, that next trip you're going to take. How do you find the things you're not looking for? Or to put it another way, how do you let yourself be found? How do I put myself or keep myself in the path of discovery? I think those are interesting questions. Marilyn Robinson, in her book Gilead, uh, has this character, John Ames, He's a 76-year-old Iowan pastor. And um, the book really is this long diary written by Ames to his son, whose young adulthood he's not going to live to see. And he worries that his son might leave the church on account of all the dysfunction that his son has witnessed. He's worried about this. And, he, and Ames is realizing that he's likely a long, the last of a long line of pastors. And he offers no defense of the church's failings. But he seizes this occasion to try and express something really important to his son. And, and um, he, he talks about how he's trying to relate to his son. And, and he, he begins by noting that when he was a child, he used to assume that the reason churches had big... Um, crosses on top of the steeple. He presumed that that was there in order to absorb lightning. And, and, and he thought, oh, that's why it's there. It's to guard the endangered smaller structures in the community. This noble view of the church's architecture. 
He says, as he grew up, he came to realize that not all churches were situated on the Great Plains, and not all churches had this pure motive. There's ego. There's other reasons for this architecture, not just in the architecture, uh, kind of a, a manipulative force of, of power. And so he wants his son to understand, I, I get it. I get there's dysfunction in the church. And, and this is what he says to him. He says, it all means more than I can tell you. You must not judge what I know by what I find words for. If I could only give you what my father gave me, no, what the Lord has given me and must also give you, but I hope you will put yourself in the way of the gift. I love that phrase. I, he's saying, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to explain this to you. There's no way that it's going to be as meaningful, this tradition, this Jesus, this church is going to be meaningful to you by me explaining it to you. My only hope is that you'll just stay in the stream. Stay in the way of the gift. Keep yourself on the path of discovery so that you might discover what I've found. Stay in the way of the gift. So three questions. How, how can I order my daily life to stay in the love of God? John 15. And Seth Godin this week asked a great question, still ruminating. How can I bump into the thing I didn't know I was looking for? And Marilyn Robinson, how can I stay in the way of the gift? So that's what I want to ask with you this morning. Um, how, or, or to put it another way, how do I organize my life to be aligned with my deepest values? What I most care about. Not my espoused values, but my operational values. The things most key to me. Thomas Merton says, ask me not where I live or what I like to eat, which is... Kind of the main Vancouver question when you meet someone. <laughs> what neighborhood are you from and have you been to the new restaurant? Ask me not where I live or what I like to eat. Ask me what I'm living for and what I think is keeping me from living fully for that. That's, I think, a better question. So we're asking those this morning. And, and this morning, what we're, where we're headed is, with those questions in the background, We've been talking for over a year about practicing the way of Jesus, and I want to get tangible about that this morning, to, to look at what, well, what does that mean and what might that mean for you and for me to, to, to put a little more meat on the bones. Let's go to Mark 12 then, as we've got these questions together. We've got Mark 12. Uh, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. And noticing Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is most important? We had a similar question in, in the lectionary reading this morning. You know, of, what, tell me about the commandments, I've done them all. And so you've got another question. Okay, yeah, yeah, get all the commandments, but Maybe this person's really into essentialism or something. I need to know what's the most important one. Or I, you know, I need some efficiency here. Just give me the number one. And this is what Jesus says in verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel. And he's quoting Deuteronomy here. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. This is common terrain if you've been around uh, the Jesus way for a while. But just, just notice, the most important thing, according to Jesus, what, what Jesus would put at the center, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And some people have called this the Jesus Creed. I mean, Jesus didn't really ever give a creed. We've got the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. Those weren't written by him. But some have argued saying, you know, if, if Jesus were to write a creed, this would be it. There's some simplicity to this. The Jesus Creed. And it comes down to really this. Passion for God, compassion for people, 
and the rest is just commentary. That's the essence. Notice also in the text, if, if you've got it there in front of you, just notice the word all and how much that repeats. Love the Lord. So there's a call here for your love, your longings, your desires. Love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And so this is the call to, you know, no compartmentalization here. This is a call to integrating your whole life. To love not only with our whole self, but from a whole self. To love with your heart, your soul, your mind, what you think about, your strength, stewarding your energy, what you do with your body, your presence. Jesus says that's the most important thing. Learning how to direct all of that in a, in a, in a whole way, growing a life of love. Lastly, notice what he doesn't say. There's no suppression here of love or desire. He's not saying, you know, like, just try and keep your desires tamped down. Okay. There's no suppression and there's no removal here about however strong your desires are. What he's asking, though, is for them to be reordered and reoriented primarily first to him and then outward to others. This is about reordering your desire. Quote Ron Rollheiser all the time, partly because he's, I, I think, awesome. I was going to say the bomb, but no one says that anymore. Um, I'm bringing it back. He's the bomb. Um, okay, so Ron Rollheiser, he says, you know what, Tim, I'm just going to move over to this. This is, this is kind of bugging Ron Rollheiser says, we are not easeful human beings who occasionally get restless, serene persons who once in a while are dispossessed by desire. The reverse is true. We are driven persons, forever obsessed, congenitally diseased, living lives as Thoreau once suggested of quiet desperation, only occasionally experiencing peace. Desire is the straw that stirs the drink. Desire intrigues us, stirs the soul. We love stories about desire, tales of love, sex, wanderlust, haunting nostalgia, boundless ambition, tra tragic loss. At the heart of all great literature, poetry, art, philosophy, and psychology, and religion lies the naming and analyzing of this desire. And this is the key part. Spirituality is ultimately about what we do with that desire what we do with our longings, both in terms of handling the pain and the hope they bring us. That is our spirituality, which is what Jesus is saying. The, the most important thing is to learn how to steward that desire and how to point that longing. It's all about where it goes. And he said, primary, it, 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 it is for God and it's for others. What you do with your longing is your spirituality, which, to be, to be honest, is a little frightening. Because <laughs> I assume this is what my spirituality is, what I'm doing right now, what we're doing, listening to Scripture. But your, your spirituality is also what you do when you get home from work and where you find rest. Your spirituality absolutely has to do with the brewery, and it absolutely has to do with your shopping, 100% has to do with how you fight and make up with people. And so that's why we're in this series. Life's too short to pretend we're not religious. Life's too short to pretend that you do not have deep longings and that your heart is a furnace that sometimes blazes out of control. And so what we do with our love and desire, that being our spirituality, this is what we're, we're looking at this fall. So the most important thing then, according to the way of Jesus, is growing in love for God and people from a whole integrated life. So, okay, great. But how? How does that kind of life happen? I think it's good to look at uh, people who've written in the 19th century. This is from the 1830s. 
by Thomas Chalmers. I love this quote. He says, why is this grateful love so important? It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. At least it is very seldom that this line is done through the instrumentality of reasoning. We're going to think our way out or think our way into new loves. Or by the force of mental determination. But that cannot be destroyed. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. And one taste may be made to give way to another. And to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection in the mind. And this is the key part. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And I'm from Alberta, and so the way we say this in Alberta is, the only way you get a bone away from a dog is to give it a steak. That's the expulsive power of a new affection. You don't reprimand the dog, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop it, drop it. That's not how it works. Why? Because it's not working on the level of command or reason. It's working on the level of desire and love. And so if there's going to be change, you need an expulsive power of a new affection. And how many of our attempts at change are just yelling, shaming? You just can't shame yourself or anyone else into change. Like, when when are you going to get this together? Or why don't you love such and such more? It's just, that's not how it works. You need the expulsive power of a new affection. And we're actually learning this in neuroscience. We're learning that this is how the brain works, that the expulsive power of a new affection is exactly what is needed to change our habits, our practices. This is a book that came out a few years ago, Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit. And it's an argument uh, here that the, the argument's basically pretty simple. He says, our life is consisted of habits, That's what makes up your life, a series of habits. Habits can be changed if you understand how they work. And Duhigg says, this is how habits work. He says, within the brain, there is a three-step loop. And he calls it the habit loop. And first of all, you've got the cue. The cue is a trigger that tells your brain to go on autopilot uh, and, and which habit to use. And then there's the routine, which can be physical, mental, or emotional. And then there's reward, which helps your brain figure out, oh, this particular loop is worth remembering for the future. Right? So you've got a, you've got a trigger, a cue. Um, so as we said, it could be what you do after work, stress. So you've got that stress. What's your routine of ha- how you handle that stress? And then your brain goes, I like that. Like four beers, I, uh, that's six. So, and so then a habit gets formed. Uh, and, and so um, he says, over time, this loop, cue, routine, reward, cue, routine, reward, becomes more and more automatic and deeper. And it gets intertwined until there's, uh, you can almost have a powerful sense of anticipation and craving. You're like, I know what's coming. I'm stressed. I know what, what's coming. And so eventually, he says, a habit's born. And so reading Duhigg, I think, helps because you're like, oh, right. No wonder it's so hard to get a consistent exercise routine. Like, it's way easier just to, because uh, I've got really deep habits of my routine and my reward. Um, no wonder it's so hard to eat better or just to shut down mindless internet browsing. Uh, sooner. That's, that's hard stuff to change. It's because our brains want to turn absolutely everything into a habit. That's what the brain's wanting to do. And of course, the more deeply entrenched a habit is, the harder it is to change it. This is what Duhigg says. Habits aren't destiny. And this is where the good, some good hope is. Habits aren't destiny. Habits can be ignored, changed, or replaced. But the reason the discovery of the habit loop is so important is that it reveals a basic truth. When a habit emerges, the brain stops fully participating in decision-making. It stops working so hard, it diverts the focus to other tasks. So unless you deliberately fight a habit, unless you find new routines, the pattern will fold un- automatically, un- unfold automatically. However, 
Simply understanding how habits work, learning the structure of the habit loop makes them easier to control once you break a habit into its components. You can fiddle with the gears. I like that. That sounds doable. You guys see the habit, break it apart, see where I'm going, say again when I'm stressed, and go, okay, what's the new practice here? What's the new appetite that needs to be cultivated? What might this look like? And we looked at the scripture a couple weeks ago, but it's, it's just too good to leave it at that. I think we've got to come back here to Romans 12, 1 to 2. There's this, there's this uh, exhortation from Paul. He says, therefore, I urge you. There's, there's some force here. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Or in the message. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. That's learning then to how to pay attention to our practices. Pay attention to where our love is going and where it's flowing. I want to look here with you about something maybe you've heard about or not um, we're going to re- review this. It's, it's something called the rule of life. And the history of the rule of life comes probably from 3rd or 4th century. It came out of the desert tradition. And then it really got uh, crystallized with Benedict in the 6th century. Uh, St. Benedict of Nursia. Now, there were monks, of course, before Benedict. But it was Benedict who kind of found the best of this monastic tradition and he, he almost gave a prescription, an order of how to, how to organize your day so that you can live a life interactive with God. So your life doesn't get overrun. Um, and so there, it's interesting when we look back in history, some people have claimed that out of, out of Benedict's leadership in creating a rule of life, uh, Benedictines uh, really transformed the culture of Europe with Within uh, a few decades of Benedict's death, there was a house of monks in every near, nearly every medium-sized town in Italy. And then their monasteries began to dominate the religious landscape of Europe, and they educated the majority of Europe's political, civic, and religious leaders for, for centuries. And so some people have claimed that the Benedictines were the educators of Europe in the Middle Ages. So that's fascinating. Uh, they created a system, a rule of life. And, and so when we hear that language, maybe you think rule of life, that sounds like rules. And I generally am not super energized by those. So this is where I go to look at my phone in the sermon. Um, well, instead of just thinking of rules, I want to give you a better image. And that's trellis. And the Latin word for rule is related to the word where we get trellis. And trellis is a structure, a framework that vines attach to so that they can grow upward and outward and bear much fruit. So what's the point of a trellis? So a vine can grow upward and outward and bear much fruit. Now, I'm, I'm not expert in these things, but there are some plants that can grow on the ground, right? Squash, right, Amy? Pumpkins, yeah, confirmed my gardening expert. So there are plants that can grow on the ground, but for the most part, new things need new trellis. So just, just hear this. It's very simple but important. Growth requires trellis plus vine. And the trellis is just simply a tool to get the grapevine off the ground. Off the ground, covered in mud, folding in on itself, wrapping itself, actually cutting itself off even from life, hidden from life, and overtaken and entangled by everything else growing around it. So the point of trellis is to get it upward and outward. And the trellis orients the vine in a particular direction. This is what a rule of life is, an intentional structure to help you grow upward and outward to bear much fruit. I think we need this because we tend often to live on autopilot, at least about these kinds of things. I think we'd know if I want to make some sort of financial gains, if I would like to retire, say, with uh, some sort of um, 
bank account. I will need a financial planner to help me with that. I, I, I need a plan. I need a structure. Because if you, I get to like when I'm 65 or 70, and I'm going like, there's no money around here. I've wanted money. A lot. Like, no, wait, something happened there. You need a plan. You, you assumed that it was, was going to happen? Like, yeah, it was going to grow. Or we have all kinds of assumptions like that, too, maybe even about our own kind of growth. You need intention. You need a plan. Autopilot in finances isn't going to serve. But often we're on autopilot in life. Crammed schedules, multiple anxieties, Tons of social obligations. I mean, I've lived here for 10 years, and I, I think it's actually getting crazier. Vancouverites, calendars. When can we hang out? I've got December 12th open. Wow, okay, I'll take it. Uh, multiple social obligations, tons of noise and pace, endless scrolling, bombardment by outrage, opinions, and options. The reality is there's tons of trellis out there. There's all kinds of trellis to get attached to and follow the direction of. We all actually have a rule of life. We have an unconscious way of ordering and binding our lives and attaching to things. Like how Cole Brown puts it, he says, all religion, including personal spirituality. So if you're one who says, I'm spiritual, not religious, this still applies. All religion is organized religion. The only question is who's doing the organizing. So let's just take a moment to consider your morning. I don't know if you have a thought out plan for your mornings. If you'd be one like, I absolutely have a rule of life for my mornings. There's trellis, baby, and it is in the ground. Or you may be a person who's just like, it's morning. I just try and get through it. I hate it. <laughs> Maybe this is how you ex- organize your mornings. Alarm. Check social media. Email. Read news. This is all happening in bed. Fall asleep. Alarm again. Feed cat. Do some worrying about the day. Make coffee. Exercise. Get dressed. Fix mind on worries while getting dressed. Run out of time. Breakfast on the way out of the door. And then to work. So that is, whether or not that's yours or it's related, that is a trellis. That is a habit. That is a rule for your morning. And maybe you've never thought about it, but it would be good to ask the question, what then is the fruit of that practice? Have you considered how your day gets shaped by what you practice in the morning? What's the fruit of your mornings? Does the pattern of my mornings, one question will be, does the pattern of my morning help me remain in the love of God? Does the pattern of my morning help me get in touch with what's most true about the world, what's most true about God, and what's most true about his call on my life? I was reading uh, one of my new heroes, Ruth Haley Barton, and what part of her morning rule and, and she's had to work for this. She's super busy, she's executive, leading, all kinds of things. Her rule is 7 to 9 a.m., no technology, no phone. The first, and so she does not touch phone till 9 a.m. She wants to get up unhurried, wants to get up, use her body, go for a walk, drink good coffee. Uh, she has a discipline of 10 to 15 minutes of just silence, sitting in the presence of God and meditating on some scripture, praying for the people she's going to be around today. And then by the time she gets to the office at 9 a.m., she's ready to engage, but she's coming from a place, a center of being loved by God and knowing my vocation in this day is to love others. So that's, that's a different rule of life than that one. What's the fruit? So one definition of rule of life Pete Scazzaro says, a rule of life is a structure or a rhythm for our lives that enables us to pay attention to God in everything we do. I love how he uses the word everything. There's no compartmentalization. 
everything we do. There's no sense of that's kind of God stuff and this stuff is just kind of neutral. It doesn't matter. Or this is kind of, yeah, that's more sacred kind of area. And this is just secular. Just my own thing. There's no compartmentalization. Or Ken Shigematsu, he says, simply a rhythm of, it's simply a rhythm of practices that empowers us to live well and grow more like Jesus by helping us experience God in everything. So, the prophet Jeremiah then says, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you'll find rest for your souls. I hear that call of... Uh, ask for some good trellis. Ask for a good rule of life. Ask where the ancient pathways are. And if you've been around artisan for a while, you know that our pathways or, or the, the flow of our practices are four directions, upward, inward, withward, and outward. And so I want to consider with you what would it like, be like to um, develop this further. Develop a rule of life. Reclaim some trellis. Put, put some structure to how your love, how your time is organized. I think just to, this is so basic, but it just has to keep being said, that at the center of all things, because Jesus said it's most important, the center is to receive love and to give love. That's, that's the most important thing. And a, a couple other things before we think of what these four directions might mean. But I think uh, the image that's come to my mind this week is uh, the gardens in East Van. When we first moved here, we were blown away by our Asian and some Italian neighbors over what I would call trellis ingenuity. <laughs> the absolute creativity at building trellis. Our neighbor beside us, the most creative trellis I've ever seen. You've got PVC pipe uh, bolted into some found wood with like a, like a recycled fish net uh, and a, a metal aluminum pole. It's crazy looking, but it works. Uh, and so it, it's, it's the image of whatever it takes to make the trellis. And it doesn't need to be fancy. And you probably already got the stuff. It's just found material to, to form the structure. So what could this be then? Keeping love at the center and a, a non-perfectionistic approach to forming a rule of life or trellis. So upward. This could be a whole number of things. Maybe there's classic things that may come to mind. Silence. Prayer. It was all kinds of prayer. So what kinds of prayer could we explore? Well, maybe some of you have been uh, in spiritual direction with Nelson or another spiritual director, and you're learning this art of centering prayer. And I love how Nelson talks about centering prayer. He says, centering prayer is just giving consent to the loving action of God in your life. It's just, isn't that beautiful? It's just like, in this moment, I'm going to take some, some stillness and some quiet once again, God, I give you consent, God, to your loving action, whatever you want to do. Surrender to you. Madeline Langle, uh, she talked about, um, what, did, what was that movie we just watched? Wrinkle in Time, yeah. She wrote A Wrinkle in Time, and she said her relationship to the Bible changed when she started a practice of swimming lengths. She'd go to the pool, and she'd swim lengths and memorize scripture. And she said, somehow by engaging her body and the rhythm, while engaging her mind on scripture, her, her relationship to the Bible, a new love, a new expulsive affection um, happened for her. So the point is, it's, there's, there's lots of opportunity to experiment, to grow in the upward direction. One of the resources we've long wanted to give you, I'm really excited this morning to, to say we finally have it, is to, to help the church have a little bit more uh, trellis when it comes to prayer and scripture. And there's a long history in the church of the daily office. And daily office just, uh, just means um, space to pray and to read scripture. And so we've got this little resource that is um, morning and evening prayer. And this comes from the Book of Common Prayer, which is from the Anglican tradition. And... Uh, it's, that's mostly what it is. We've customized it a little bit. But in this little book, you've got a scripture reading plan. 
you've got some prompts to pray. Uh, it's really good to pray uh, written, well-crafted words just to kind of hitch your wagon up to that and say, I don't know what to say or what to think. It's a way to educate your mind and your emotions to God. So you can, there, there's written prayers in there, but then there's also space for you to pray. Uh, and I think this is going to be really helpful for us. And so we've got it online um, where you can get a PDF of it. And if you want to just have it on your phone, I want to invite you to begin experimenting. Uh, this could be one thing that you just add a little bit of trellis in your day of taking 10 minutes at the beginning and end of your day to practice morning and evening prayer. I want to encourage you to not evaluate it at least for three months. Just do it. Just do it and don't, don't uh, get too far up in your head about this and go, ah, it's not working. Yeah, you did it one day, pal. Okay, so uh, give, your, give yourself to it. Uh, there's some written copies out at the info desk. If you'd like one, please grab one. Uh, and, and we'll maybe in a few weeks and months, we'll start hearing some stories of how has this little practice started percolating through our community? What's happening as we're learning to remain in the love of God in the morning and in the evening? So that's one resource. Couldn't be more excited uh, to, to get that to you. So upward, experimenting finding ways to pray, to be with God. Inward. Wow, there's so many things here. Inward. This is your relationship with yourself, which God's very much interested in restoring. And so maybe that will be mean like um, coming to terms that you have a body and God's inviting you to love it and to be in it and to exert it. And that exercise isn't just for losing calories, but for being in a body getting outside and breathing air that doesn't come through an office air conditioner. So maybe inwards exercise. Maybe inwards saying, I think God's commandment about keeping the Sabbath, I think God meant that. I think the seven days, like never off work email thing actually is starting to crush my soul. So I'm going to be a little more resolute. No work email on Sundays or Fridays, I need days where it's not about accomplishing things, where I remember that the world will move on without my contribution, that I can be still and know that he is God. I need the Sabbath. You know what? I need counseling. It's time. It's time. I I need some counseling. My main strategy is just to bury that stuff deep, and that's just not working anymore because it keeps coming up. It's time for some counseling. Part of my rule of life for inward is uh, uh, being absolutely religious about reading poetry. That's not prescribed for everyone, but for me, I, I need that. Um, it may be the examine. Just the simple practice of, say, ending your day with going, God, Holy Spirit, help me to see the, this day where uh, life was stolen, where life went away. And Holy Spirit, help me see the, the points in the day where life came in. I was talking to someone in our congregation. I talked about the examine like a year and a half ago. And they just latched onto that practice. Every day, been writing in their journal of where, where, what's been death dealing in my day and life giving in my day. And that's actually unfolded for them a clearer sense of vocation. Like, by doing that every day for months, I have a clear sense of what, how God's made me. Oh, so beautiful. I wish I did it and just didn't teach about it, but that's amazing. Um, Withward. Withward. This this, this is not prescriptive. I'm just trying to animate some ideas here. This could be, if if you're in a relationship, just resurrecting date night. Saying, you know what, we have to guard our love. We need some trellis. The vine of our love is just kind of all tangled up and getting choked out. We've got to get some dates on the calendar. Even if that means, I saw a friend's Instagram picture. We've got a young little infant, so date night's not happening anymore. And they're alternating who gets to take a bath with the candles. And then the other person sits on the bathroom floor with a laptop on the toilet. And they watch a movie and have a glass of wine. That's their their new date night. It could be uh, regular extended time with extended family or chosen family. And if, if, if what you have is chosen family, which many of us do in Vancouver, 
I think it takes some intentionality here to put some trellis down and saying, you know what, I've come to terms. I don't have extended family here for whatever reason, but I'm, I'm going to get religious about this. I'm putting trellis in the ground. We're getting dates on the calendar with my chosen family. Withward could be, I'm, I'm joining a neighborhood group. I, I need community. I need to get in. Could be practicing hospitality. I don't want to say who, but it was Craig and Katie who um, said, I think this is amazing, said to the McTaggarts, what was the phrase? We're, the waffle thing? Yeah, we're bringing a waffle invasion. And so they went over to the McTaggart's house and apparently cooked amazing waffles for the McTaggart's. I like that kind of creativity in the hospitality. We're coming to your house <laughs> and we're bringing waffles. So maybe that's a, that's a thing. And who knows how after doing a waffle invasion with some people you don't know, who knows what kind of sparks and what way the vines will grow. So lots of options. Outward. I mean, it could be that you never do this, but you're going to have a practice up until October 20th. You're going, to, um, you're going to engage your city by being informed about the upcoming municipal election. And you're going to vote. You're going to be informed. You're going to vote, and you're going to intercede for the elected officials. And just try like a two-week experiment of like, what would happen to my, my own love for Vancouver if I didn't just think about its coffee shops and the things that, like the seawall and the things I consume here, but the, the ways I can contribute here. I'm going to start by praying for the city. It could be a simple practice like that. It could be just an unheroic weekly thing of showing up, joining up with UGM. It could be a relationship where you go, you know what, I don't get a lot out of this. For whatever reason, God's put me in this person's corner. I'm just going to be doggedly pursuing them, texting them throughout the week, praying for them. Relationships of the long haul. Who knows what it will be? Up, in, with, and out. Just a couple short things, and then we're going to wrap it up here. Just a, a note. As we start to consider this, and by the way, we're, we're not going to just leave this to theory. We actually want to do this and to encourage one another to have a rule of life, to have some practice around this. So you may be asking, like, actually? Yeah, actually. Uh, and, and we're going to get nerdy about it. Is a, we're going to just, we're calling them practice sheets. It's going to be a practice sheet, basically has that um, diagram on it. And, and we're going to, as a church, slowly move towards this becoming normal where we consider what's the trellis of my life and what ways is God inviting me to move in these four, four directions. And then to share that with other people. Maybe share that with your neighborhood group. That could be um, a withward night. You just Everyone shares their rule of life and say, like, how, how is God inviting you to move? What, what are the pathways? What's the trellis look like? Ooh, that's a good idea. I'm stealing that one. Or however, however it works. Maybe with a, a trusted friend we share. Um, but more to come in the coming weeks and months about this. We want this to be an actual, real thing. So, uh, just a few encouragements. Don't compare, but learn from other people. Don't worry about what other people are doing so much. You, you can borrow and tweak, but don't let what anyone else is doing discourage you from taking whatever small step it is that God's inviting you to do. Little steps, small things matter. There's seasons of life. If you are a mom and like one of your rule of life is like, I just would like a break to have enough time to get a shower and so that the baby is not bugging me. Like, I just, I remember this when we were in this phase of life. It's just like, can I get a break from this beautiful, incessant, annoying, beautiful creature? Love you, kids. Um, you know, and so you don't compare yourself when you're in that season of life. To, to someone who's got a ton of extra time that you do. So don't, you don't compare. Your rule of life is going to be customizable. There may be patterns of sin that you are contending with, that God is putting his finger on and saying, you know, it's time. It's time. There's patterns of sin. There's habits, habit loops that have been going on since you were 14. And God in his mercy is saying, oh, you know, let's, 
Let's, let's go after that together. Let's unroot that from your life. There may be places where God is asking you to take new risks. There may be places where God's asking you to occupy your life with just more gentleness. He's not asking you to be like a superstar athlete here. Just You need seasons of rest where maybe your rule of life is lighter than other seasons. I think another thing is to experiment. Just We want to get started, so prototype. Try stuff out, fail, and then iterate, and then just keep learning. Make this a living document. And last, to prune. Prune. Cut things off. You can try them, and then you're totally free to stop them. I was reminded about Bob Goff this week. And Bob Goff, if you, if you may know him, he just came out with a book called Everybody Always, which tells you a lot about this guy. And it's all about how just to love everybody all the time, which sounds exhausting. Uh, but Bob is an Enneagram 7, and so he's got wide capacity for embracing people. But he said the secret for him to love everybody always is this little quote, every single Thursday I quit something. And, and he actually does that. He, he quits things all the time. He starts them, tries them, but he's got a rule of life, part of his rule Thursdays is quitting day. <laughs> and, and it could be just like quitting a habit, quitting a thought pattern. Um, you follow on Twitter, and so often on, on Thursdays, he'll put out a tweet like, Thursday's a good day for uh, quitting, living up to people's expectations of you. That'd be a nice thing to quit. Um, and so I think there's, there's playfulness here. You can prune. And, and of course, pruning is painful, but it's all about redirecting the energy. You've only got so much. So you're going to steward that well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good, absolutely, Michelle. We're 10 too. We're still good. Yeah. I'll be short. <laughs> very, very short. But uh, this happened, I don't know how many years ago it was, and it still sits with me. Um, Lance did a speaking series at Camp Luther one summer brought his dad, who does bonsai trees. So all he did, he did not do any teaching. He just taught us how to cut bonsais and shape bonsais and all of this. Spent four days on this beautiful little tree, brought it to perfection. We were all just so anxious watching the process and getting tons of gleaning from God on what happened. And then on the last day, he comes up and goes, I have one more cut. And he cuts the base, chops the tree down, and throws it aside. And we're like, what did you just do? And he goes, well, what you did not see in all of the long grass that was on the base that I've now cut is there was a tiny little sapling in the corner that was hidden by the, the grass. But him as the pruner understood what it was. And he said, this tiny little sapling is worth a lot of money. This big, huge, beautiful tree I'd been working on for all this time is a dime a dozen. And I just keep that in mind whenever I hear any of these stories about quitting things. Just because it's big and looks well-rounded doesn't mean that it is not overshadowing something that is much more important. So use God's eyes. That's good. Thank you, Michelle. Really good word. Yeah. That's one of the things he, he said, he says, I didn't have one like that. And I love that. He's, he's like, I didn't have this one. And, and then someone said, well, how long is it going to take for that little one to grow to be the size of the one you just cut and threw in the garbage? He said, probably 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> so pruning. So Teresa, she says it, I think, best. She says, uh, the important thing is not to think much, but to love much. And so to do that which stirs you to love. It's the most important thing. As we think about moving in these directions, these four directions, it's just good to be, I think, wise about this, that this is not easy. And that there's counterflow here. And the, the way that you've been shaped and I've been shaped, the upward, inward, withward, outward, we've mostly been shaped in a different direction. And, and it's a word that doesn't exist. It's me-word. That's mostly where we've been shaped, to, to, to move me-word. And so considering moving out in this counterflow thing is going to be challenging. We need the expulsive power of a new affection. 
I was thinking about this a number of years ago, four or five years ago, um, with Amy's family, who lives in Abbotsford. And part of our rule of life in the with section would be once a month, we meet with Amy's family out in Abbotsford. And four or five years ago, what would usually happen at these gatherings would be we'd roll out of here, drive to Abbotsford. We'd get to the family gathering, tons of kids. It's great. It's really good. But I would always fall asleep. And this became a joke of me napping in the corner. And so I get teased about this. And there was other times, too, where I wasn't napping in the corner. I was on my phone in the corner. I felt fairly justified and I was like, I've been up since 5 on Sundays. I'm really tired. I was nice all morning to a whole church. I was, and um, I, and I, kinda, I feel like I gave everything I had to those people. And I just tired. And, uh, but I got called out on it. There's some teasing. But then my sister-in-law said, hey, you know, you've been on your phone a lot. And it's bugging me. It communicates that you're not really here or like you don't want to be here. And so I was immediately offended. And def- <laughs> um, but then I knew she was right. And um, I cooled down a bit and emailed her back. I said, you're totally right. Uh, I'm sorry. And uh, I got I to gotta change my habits. I had had a habit of being present but not actually being present. And what they were wanting for was for me to be there fully, to engage with my body and my emotions and my stories and my listening with my whole self, a whole self presence. And so in order to address this napping habit and rude phone habit, I needed new practices. And so this is, this, I'm really basic, but I needed, I needed to go in the other direction. I need to go in the opposite flow of where my napping and phone flow was going. And it was uncomfortable because I'm so tired. I still got to go in the opposite flow, opposite of the me word flow. And so I had to do things like this. And I would, I would do this. I would pray on the drive out to Abbotsford. God, would you give me curiosity and wonder for these people that I assume I already know? God, would you help me to be awake and alive to them? Not looking to get stuff, looking like what, could I, what little deposit could I give these people? Uh, the different habits of, of the practice of asking more questions and listening longer than I think is necessary. It's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work at asking better questions. And I'm not going to tune out when they're talking. I'm going to listen longer. Um, practices of, of like being, going up, thinking about this, Lance, it's important that you move the affection that you have for your nephews and nieces to move that from your heart to your face. Just try that a bit. Show on your face how much you love these kids. And then in your body, instead of the recliner, get on the floor. Be the uncle who wrestles and rolls around and comes home with a little bit of carpet burn. <laughs> so I had, to, I had to change my habits. And I'm not saying I'm an awesome uncle or anything like that, but it has changed in the last five years. How, how I uncle is different now. I haven't had a nap in, I'm just testifying here, I have not had a nap for, for <laughs> a long time. Yeah, thank you, Amy. Okay. Thank you, sister. Sister Amy, okay. So, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair, G.K. Chesterton says. That's the heart of this. It's learning how to educate our emotions and our wills and our minds. Learning how to direct our longings. That's your spirituality. And in order to direct it, you need trellis. And you need structure. And you need a plan. And you need intention. This just doesn't happen. But at the base of it, it's about being rooted in love. There's a story by uh, Ed Farrell. Uh, I think Will's uncle. I'm not sure. No, probably not. But Ed Farrell, is, he's, a, he's a priest from Detroit. And he tells the story of going over to Ireland to spend uh, a two-week summer vacation to celebrate his favorite uncle's 80th birthday. 
So he goes to Ireland, and on the morning of the birthday, Ed and his uncle, they get up before dawn, they dress in the silence, and they go for a walk along the shores of Lake Killarney. And just as the sun is rising, his uncle turns and stares at the sun and stands there. And so Ed realizes, okay, we're no longer walking. I guess we're, we're standing. And so kind of faces the same direction as Uncle Seamus. And Uncle Seamus stands there for 20 minutes. Ed, so Ed realizes, okay, I guess we're, we're here now. And stands there. And so after about 20 minutes, Ed asks his uncle... Oh, sorry, no, after 20 minutes, then old Uncle Seamus, 80 years old, starts skipping down the beach. And so Ed's like, I've not seen this before, an 80-year-old skipping Irish man early in the morning. So he catches up to Seamus and then finally asks, what are you doing? What's going on? And after Ed's caught up to him, Uncle Seamus says, uh, Ed says, Uncle Seamus, you look very happy you want to tell me why? And Uncle Seamus says, yes, lad. He says, you see, the father is very fond of me. Ah, my father is so very fond of me. So Uncle Seamus has a rhythm, getting up in the morning, facing the sun, just standing there silent, remembering, oh yeah, God likes me. The father is very fond of me. And apparently that sometimes produces skipping. That's the fruit of a rhythm, a rule, some trellis. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Stay, make your home in my love. I'll just squeeze one quick story in here as we come to the table. I remember, I think this was the first time my family, we took our kids to stay in a hotel. And the reason we stayed in a hotel was because I didn't tr- check the travel plans before we left. And so we arrived at the uh, accommodations a day early. And so it's hard to stay at a place when you haven't booked it. And um, so we, we were staying in, in uh, the Winfield area in BC. And so we got there. Oh, oh, right, yeah, no. Sorry, sorry, ma'am, now I've checked the email. Yeah, it does say the booking starts tomorrow. So sorry to bother you. We'll be back tomorrow. So we drive back into Winfield. Where are we going to stay? Uh, okay, find just a cheap, small hotel, and, and the, the kids are so stoked about it. You'd think we were staying at the Shangri-La or something. They're just, this place is amazing. Yes, you can jump on the beds. It's great. And uh, so just enjoy it. You know, we're in a hotel room. It's awesome. We're all tired after a day of travel. We get them all tucked in, and um, it's the two double queen setup type of thing. And um, so we get everyone in. The lights are off, and everyone's getting more or less quiet. And Eva, she's probably three or four at this time. She says, "Papa, I'm scared. I want to hold your hand." And so she was laying in that bed with her mom on the outside, and I was laying in this bed on the outside, and there was the little space, and then the phone and the lamp in between us. She said, I want to hold your hand, and so I reached out, and she reached out, and I I held her little hand, and we're laying there in the dark. The air-conditioned air is blowing over our bodies. I'm thinking, ah, I wish I didn't have to spend this money. Check... (laughs) Check my emails more often. And then she says, Papa, don't let go. So I realized this isn't going to be a short hand-holding. And I realized it's up to me to maintain the connection. And so I'm under her, and I want her to fall asleep, and I want her to be secure, and my arm is shaking (laughs) for fatigue. (laughs) But it's up to me. I'm the older one to hold the connection, and she said, Papa, don't let go, and so I held on, and I held on, and I held on, till I was sure she was asleep, and crossed the little space, and tucked her arm underneath, so she could go to sleep. I just want to say to you, whatever little bit of love or desire you have towards God is so incredibly meaningful, and I know that to be a fact, because her little expression of desire for connection which is my heart for her, 
that little bit of expression moved my heart to whatever it takes. I will, I will hold on. I just want to assure you, any little step, any, any little flow of love that you direct towards God is incredibly meaningful. And it's up to God to maintain the connection. And, and he's faithful to do that. So this week, uh, try experimenting a little bit. Maybe it's time to uproot some trellis. You've got some stuff growing that you don't really want growing. So you've got to pull that structure out of there and put it towards the stuff where there's not a lot of growth. Maybe it's just finding some materials. Like just go through a walk in, in Strathcona and just have a look in these backyards and go, it's unbelievable, a found material. What is God inviting me to build trellis with? Or maybe for the first time, just thinking, just being a little more intentional how to remain in the love of God 